out of WPFW Washington, D.C.'s only radio show at the intersection of social justice, higher education, and art. You were just listening to D.C.'s Been Good to Me by the Jogo Project. I'm Corinne Ruff. And I'm Jelena Tolani. Today, on the International Day of Persons with Disabilities, we're talking about special education services. These are the resources that kids need through elementary and high school to help them overcome specific learning challenges. That can be anything from unique teacher help, to classroom technology that can guide students through their coursework. Specifically, we're exploring two questions. What happens to kids with disabilities who need help in high school if they don't receive it? And how does that impact their transition to college and post-secondary life? If you have a story to share or a question on this topic, we want to remind you to call in. We want to hear from you and hear your stories. So give us a call. The number is 202-588-0893. Or if you don't want to call, but you do have comments or questions, you can email us throughout the show at schoolofthought@wpfw.org. And of course, we are on all the social media channels like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the name at thoughtwpfw. So today, to guide us throughout our discussion, we'll be speaking with Howard University Dean of Student Services, Elaine Bourne-Heath, Scott Solberg, psychology professor at Wheelock College of Boston University as well. He will also be joining us. Throughout his career, he has focused on career development for high schoolers, especially for youth with special needs. And later for Artist Spotlight, we'll be speaking with Paula Moore, the founder and conductor of Interplay Orchestra here in Washington, D.C. The Bethesda-based nonprofit was started by Paula nearly 30 years ago as a way to connect cognitively disabled adults living independently and working in the community through music. So we're going to go straight into our news hits. We've previously talked in the show about how crippling student debt can be. Many college graduates take out tens of thousands of dollars worth of loans and may not feel like their degrees have a significant return on that investment. But a new study is showing that sometimes a loan burden can fall on the shoulders of parents as well. It found the average loan amount parents take out for their children has more than tripled over the last 25 years. And many of these parents have loan repayments in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. The report shows it's not just that students are defaulting on loans, it's also parents. Repayment rates have also declined for this group. Today, around 3.7 million parents borrowing one type of federal loan owe about $87 billion. And parents with this type of loan debt are not eligible for the same type of protections student borrowers have. Now, education leaders are asking that policymakers require greater transparency in the industry. Borrowers ought to be able to see whether their investment will pan out, they say. 
In other news, a professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of the Arts in Richmond, Virginia, won't teach for the remainder of the semester, following an incident last month in which he allegedly called university security on a black adjunct professor who was eating breakfast in her assigned classroom. Multiple sources and students at the school told NBC12 that students stopped attending his classes, his teaching students quit, and he would not be teaching for the rest of the year. Graduate school visiting professor Caitlin Cherry told the network that at the time of the incident, another professor poked his head in the room and then disappeared. Shortly after, security entered the room and questioned who she was. Cherry said she was thankfully wearing her university ID badge, without which she doesn't know what would have happened. The university's Department of Equity and Access has looked into the matter and concluded that no laws were broken, according to the report. Students and faculty have rallied in, in support of Cherry while calling for greater inclusion and diversity at the university. In response, the university said it will set up a task force among other initiatives to be announced this week. That's it for our news hits. about special education services and access for students with disabilities. And these are the questions that we're posing. What happens to kids who need help in high school if they don't receive it? And how does that impact their transition to college? To help us answer these questions and many more, we'll be speaking shortly with Scott Solberg, a psychology professor at Wheelock College of Boston University. He specializes in career development for students with learning disabilities. We're also happy to be joined by Howard University Dean of Student Services, Elaine Bourne-Heath, who can speak from the administrative perspective on what challenges she's noticed for students with disabilities on campus and what the university can do to help. Before we get to that discussion, let's dive into the topic a little bit. According to the most recent updates of federal data, roughly 6.7 million students under the age of 21 are receiving special education services. That's 13% of all public school students. Among students in this category, 34% have specific learning disabilities. This is critical because other federal data shows only one-third of students with disabilities who enroll in a four-year college graduate within eight years, and only 41% of those who enroll at two-year school graduate within that time frame as well. And to add another layer of complexity to this data, a 2016 press release from the Department of Education showed many children of color, particularly those from black and American Indian backgrounds, are identified as needing special education, education services at a much greater rate than other classmates. Experts say that's not because students with disabilities can't handle the coursework, but rather because high school students often neglect to teach these students the soft skills they need to succeed like how to manage time, study, and advocate for themselves. Because students with disabilities process information differently, parents, students, and teachers have been advocating for more specific instruction for these students as they transition into secondary education. So to help us understand these figures, we're going to be speaking with Scott Solberg and Dean Elaine Bornheath. Scott, are you on the line? I am. Great. Elaine, are you on there as well? I am. Great. So happy to have you on with us tonight. Great, yes. I'm excited. Let's Thank you for you having all. us. Great. Well, to start off, um, we'd love to have each of you define what spe special education is and how your work intersects with it. Dean Heath, could you start by explaining you know, what special education services are and what type of students might need them? And as well, are there any myths that you might like to dispel? Well, at the university level, we don't call it special education. 
we we talk about students with differing abilities we talk about students with disabilities but we don't refer to it as special education yeah absolutely could you talk a little bit about um you know what what those services look like at howard what we do is provide a accommodations for students with disabilities or differing abilities based on their medical documentation. So most of the students that come to us have been diagnosed with a learning disability or other forms of challenges that might affect their ability to be successful in, in the university. So with, with we look at the medical documentation and we provide the accommodations to, to make their, to ensure their success in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And Scott, so how about, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, for instance, uh-huh. as you mentioned in your, in your intro, there's students that, that process differently. They pr- might process information slower. And so we afford them extra time to study for exams, to actually sit for their exams. Uh, we might provide uh, additional time to complete their assignments. So we're leveling the playing field so that students with those differing abilities have the opportunity to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Scott, how about you? Um, could you talk a little bit about how your research intersects with this topic? Yeah, so my my area, so as a professor uh, at Boston University, we've been conducting a lot of work on the whole transition and readiness, college and career readiness, um, for helping all youth and, and in that youth with disabilities is one of our was one of our key areas. You know, what are both cognitive and then as you described in in the intro, what are some of these other soft skills or what we call social emotional learning skills? Lots of different names for it. But it's that it's that ability to advocate for oneself, the ability to understand the kinds of accommodations and support systems. You mentioned time management, things like that. Um, that are necessary, but it's actually more than that. The challenges we have when you look at um, post-secondary completion rates um, is a lot of youth are assuming that once they get to college, um, everything's going to work out, that the goal itself is getting into college. When we know from from all of the, the college retention rates for all students, especially, as you said, for students with disabilities, as well as students of color and lower-income, uh, students from lower-income backgrounds, the 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 rates of, of college completion is really challenging. It's really low. And one of the challenge, one of the issues that we've been doing in our research is looking at how we can help all students enter those post-secondary pathways, whether a two-year, four-year training program, how they can enter with a purpose. And that purpose is defined around their career and life goals. And where we have a significant challenge um, in, our, in our special education is we haven't always worked with them, as you were starting to say. We haven't always worked with them to really help encourage them to think about that future, to look at themselves as having talent. Um, because there's a disability, it's sort of like that becomes a primary, but that's only one part of the whole of the whole piece. And with accommodations, they will be able to um, do just fine in most cases. But the issue comes down to, but what do I want to do? And so our research has been um, designing around how to personalize um, that learning in a way that students are able to identify their goals and then identify the pathways, both academic and outside of school learning, um, that will help them achieve them. Scott, like you said, the research that you do is really about the individualized learning plans and helping students, um, you know, be able to, to shape their future careers. Can you define what these types of learning plans look like 
in in your eyes, what should be included in this? Yeah, so this is something that's happening right now in most states, and it's at the K-12 level, mostly high school, although most states have agreed that, that it needs to start no later than middle school. And we even have higher education starting to get into it as well. And what a plan consists of is three major buckets. One is self-exploration skills, so does the individual know their talent, aware of their skills, their um, all of the possibilities that they have around those skills. So the career exploration skills have to do with do they understand where that talent can apply in the world of work. And so it's, it's, it's also about labor market. Do they understand what opportunities are out there and what those economic uh, implications are with these different opportunities? Um, and then career planning and management has to building both in high school that four-year course plan, um, but as well as a post-secondary plan to figure out how I can begin to pursue um, these goals as I begin to, um, as, they, as, they, as I start to realize there's some really exciting things out there that I want to uh, begin to uh, pursue. So that, that's kind of the, the piece of it. There's a portfolio involved. There's online information systems that support it. Um, and again, most districts are involved in this kind of work right now. What we've been doing in our research is trying to help um, schools do a more effective job of implementing this process uh, with better quality and fidelity and to make sure that it's fully inclusive. So we're not just personalizing it in a way that students are separated, but we're creating very inclusive environments and groups with a, with a mentor um, who offers that caring and encouraging quality to help you really think about themselves as potential and having possibilities. That's really one of the things that we found in our early research is that we don't think students with disabilities are always being encouraged to think about their possibilities and the different future options that they have. And as a result, they really feel comfortable being in school, but they don't feel comfortable thinking about their future. Yeah, Dean Heath, how, how does Tower tackle this? Um, how does that sort of experience at the K-12 level play out for students um, at, at the college level? What do individualized learning plans look like there? And how much do students need to advocate for themselves to get these resources? Well, we look at, we certainly do look at other things that Scott has, has talked about. And what we, we at Howard do is create partnerships, certainly with the academic advisors, with career services, with faculty members, with the counseling center, so that we can really kind of create a holistic approach to students. We also conduct case management with each one of our students so that we really do actually develop some of the plans that Scott has discussed. We really pay attention to their major and minor. We talk about job opportunities with them, and we also encourage them through the career services to interview for positions on the, when the recruiters come on campus. So we really kind of have them do that. We also teach self-advocacy so that when, as they're talking with their professors about their accommodations, about their classes, how they're doing, we teach them the appropriate way of approaching professionals with their questions, but showing them how to create opportunities for themselves. Um, Scott, you mentioned um, you know that transition process being really hard to shape some of the soft skills. I wondered if you could talk a little, a little bit about where you see the most challenges coming through in that period. Uh, in terms of the transition into post-secondary yeah. or, or during? Okay. I would say yeah, um, into the transition to post-secondary education. Yeah. So, so in my mind, I think the purpose is the big issue. I think that the college major is this of many students will, uh, in our in our research, we found that about um, 40% of the students that we 
um, surveyed out of a national group had a pretty clear idea of what their major would be. And that, that, that idea was um, based on a real clear sense of exploring the world of work and exploring their skills and kind of, and they could really describe in detail uh, what they went through. But the other 60% just gave you a major. You know, they said, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a veterinarian. I'm going to be this. It was clear that they had never really linked it to their talent and they had never really explored the true nature. I've heard so many students that go into medicine and then realize, oh, no, there's blood involved. I don't think I want to do that anymore. So they, they've selected into something, but they have they really done the full exploration. And so for the first part of the transition, I would love, um, we just were putting a toolkit together on this, a post-secondary toolkit um, around college and career advising, that at the point of entry, you know, you've been accepted, are we assessing their kind of career readiness? Are we assessing that as they're entering college with a full purpose as part of that assessment tool? So we assess a lot for the academic are we assessing for purpose and meaning? And if and if the, if it's clear that they've got an idea but they haven't really thought through it or they haven't explored it, I would love that transition period to be a lot more focused, not just on putting them on interest assessments and looking at majors, but really looking at themselves and then exploring the world of work to see where these different different talents might go. And from there, we can now is this the right major? Is this the right pathway? What are other alternative pathways that might be something to think about? So that by the time that first year is over, they have a plan for how they can more effectively use this college experience to really propel them into the future. So it's that meaning-making, I think, that's the key piece. And like I said, just naturally, even even in school, these were statistics that were high on the ILP work, and they're still recognizing them as doing great work. Even in those settings, we still had 60 students who really just weren't quite clear on who they were, but they saw college as something that they thought would help them um, figure it out. And we're just suggesting that maybe we could spend that first year really focusing on those students that could use um, attention. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Dean Heath, to, to go to your perspective, um, I'm curious what it looks like at Howard when uh, a freshman student comes in their first semester and, and comes to you to student services and says, OK, I have these disabilities. How can you help me um, get through and, and ultimately graduate? What does that first semester and year look like? We certainly start off with orientation for our students, and we do, as Scott has suggested, we teach those mental skills, those skills around executive functioning, remembering details, how to organize time management, how to pay attention, focus and and shifting focus, planning, uh, multitasking. So we spend a lot of time really orienting them to the university experience. And I think that is something that is very important in that first year. And then we shift into other things. And, again, as I said, we actually do case management with them. So they're assigned to a, a person that is focused on them, working with them, watch, looking at their progress throughout the semester. And then we move them into looking at career opportunities based on what they, what they like. Again, the career services uh, department at Howard, has a well-established four-year plan that really sets students apart in terms of promoting their likes, dislikes, and exploring what they would like to do uh, in as their professional career. Where, where would you see there needs to be, and either of you feel free to answer this question, where would you see there needs to be more support on the policy level for students with these kinds of learning challenges as they try to make these transitions? 
Well, I think I think K through 12 does a good job with that in most instances because they come to the university very often with an individual education plan, which they have used throughout their their at their um, school school their K through 12 educational process. And so they are aware of what they need to do, how they function. And so I think they come in with an idea of of who they are and how they need to fit into the academic environment. And then through our orientation, our management, and working with the professors, working with career services, working with academic advising in terms of looking at their course load, we try to make it comfortable for them so that they can be, our goal is for every student to be successful. And if that means taking 12 hours versus 15, looking at the, 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 the configuration of the courses that they're actually enrolled in so that they can be successful, their study time, uh, and we certainly want to make create an environment where they, they're whole students. So we look at their social-emotional growth, their professional lives in within the university, joining organizations, all of that really creates an, another opportunity for them, say, to learn leadership skills that they can then take to their major and then take to their, to their position uh, as they graduate. So we're really looking at that whole system, that whole student, and creating something that is very good for them. Yeah, I think those are those are all outstanding qualities, and I think you know, when you talk about the case management piece, making sure that no one's falling through the cracks is really um, a critical piece. The only thing I would add to that is a very radical, um, and I know crazy notion, but that I would love to see higher ed move away from um, deciding, you know, kind of trying to make it a fair system so that we have, um, we make sure that all of the, whatever whatever they need for their uh, for accommodations is done so that no student has an unfair advantage and shift mm-hmm. to competencies so that at the end of the day, if what you need to show me is that you have developed the competencies associated with class objectives, then students can personalize the different ways in which they might make, demonstrate those competencies. And I think it would allow our students with disabilities to now be in a stronger position where they need to advocate. So if it's multiple choice, is not there is not something that they're able to do based on mm-hmm. attention span or based on the cognitive complexity. What can you show me? Right? Can you show me a multimedia presentation? Can you show me maybe it's a written paper? Um, there's lots of different ways that I think our students can show those competencies, but we need our higher ed partners to really look at it as a competency based issue, not as a let's decide if you've, you know, there's a fair, you know, grading on a curve and things like that 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 still predominate. So, for students with disabilities, I think that would provide a really exciting playing field that all students can thrive um, if they if we think of it in those terms. And I, w- I wonder for both of you again, um, for our listeners here in the DMV area, I'm wondering if you have any messages for them. Why is it important for society at large to care about the educational pathways for students um, that have learning disabilities? I think it's important for the American public to realize the the diversity of students and, of course, persons who go into the workforce. We want to certainly have them destigmatize disabilities or persons with differing abilities. We want to make sure that they are being, that our students are being treated as equal. I I really appreciate what uh, Scott said about the competencies, and I think, of course, some majors lend themselves to that more than others. 
And I think if we could really kind of look at that across the board in terms of not just a paper, but what does it mean for a paper and what does a good paper look like for all students Mm -hmm. and and what are the competencies that grow out of that just in terms of organization, language usage, and that type of thing, I think we would go a long way. But I think it's important that we as a American public destigmatize what we say is different. And I think that would go a long way in enhancing the power of our students. Yeah, and same yeah, you, Scott. Total agreement. I think where some of the issue is, is also, I, I listened to a, um, an employer out in Wisconsin talk about it. He says, I don't talk about these students as having special needs. I talk about them as having special talent. And this mm-hmm. idea that we need, to, we need to be able to appreciate the qualities that all of our students bring. And when we have students with, with specialized kind of learning disabilities um, that are going on, they're compensating and providing additional talents as well that are there for which they're going to flourish. How can we help identify what those are and help them find a place in the world that they that they can thrive in? But also, as players and as peers, I mean, I think the college campus is a great place to redesign that sense of belonging. I think the the community feels stronger when there's a there's an inclusive environment where we're really striving to help everyone in the community thrive. Um, and that basic core belief is something that I think can happen. I think we're seeing it happen in places. It sounds like we've it happening at Howard. Um, and, and as we start to do that and start to realize that everyone has a place where they belong, I think it's, I don't think we're anymore are we talking about disability as a key issue. We're just talking about what's your talent and where can we apply that talent. Scott, Elaine, thank you both so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Up next is our Artist Spotlight, and for that, we've got a conversation that connects our topic of the day to the music world. So our guest this week is Paula Moore. Paula is the founder and conductor of the Interplay Orchestra here in Washington, D.C. Nearly 30 years ago, after giving birth to her third child, who was born with Down syndrome but very musically inclined, she started the organization as a way to connect cognitively disabled adults living independently and working in the community through music. Here's more. My name is Paula Moore. I am the principal conductor and founder of the Interplay Orchestra at Strathmore. Great. And and to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background in music? You started this orchestra nearly 30 years ago, but when did you first start playing an instrument and and get into conducting? Oh, well, that's two different questions. I started (laughs) as a musician when I was about five years old, and uh, both singing and playing the piano and got very active here in the Washington area when I moved here from Pennsylvania, working with two musical groups, the American Light Opera Company and Hexagon Inc., um, as a performer. Uh, Along the way, had three children, uh, one of whom uh, is a young man with Down syndrome. And um, he was born very musical, and that sort of sent me on a totally different path than what I was doing, which was public relations work in the area. We actually started the um, orchestra uh, in 1989, um, and when Strathmore opened, went with Strathmore. Exciting to hear that you're doing work in this field. So we know that Interplay Orchestra is targeting musicians and their ages between their 20s and their 60s with various cognitive disabilities, and many of them are unable to read music. 
With the help of aides and professional musicians, they learn how to play all kinds of instruments. Can you tell us more about how rehearsals and concerts work? Well, first of all, not every person that comes in is paired up with a Band-Aid, and that's B-A-N-D-A-I-D-E. We were originally a band, but we got so big that Elliot Van Steele at um, Strathmore suggested that we become an orchestra. So that's originally we were the interplay band. I know these aides, some of them are musicians. Oh, yes. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about how they work with, you know, the other musicians? All right. The folks that come in as aides uh, work with um, a few of our musicians with disabilities who just need a musical leg up, as it were. And they do not play for the musician. Um, They sit in with the orchestra. These are all folks with everyone who comes into um, interplay who does not have a cognitive disability must have a music background. They don't have to be playing a musical instrument currently, but they have to have had a musical education. And these folks sit with um, the few people that, as I said, need the musical leg up and um, explain as the music is played, we, you need to know that we do not change our music. However the music was written originally, uh, we say from Bach to Basie, we play it as it is written. So if um, one of our or several of our musicians need a leg up, then the um, amateur or professional musician who is sitting with them explains what to do because I'm up front or Paul Bankser, who is our associate conductor, uh, we're up front conducting. So the Band-Aid works with that person but does not, and this is very important, does not play for that person, explains what the person should be doing, and then the person plays it and um, usually has no problem. And we play in concert three times a year, and you can see by looking at the the mass of musical people in front of you that no one is having a problem playing the music. So what kind of impact do you think this type of orchestra has for yourself and for people around you? Well, let's take the folks who come to the concerts or who hear about us. Most of the people who come the first time are very skeptical. They cannot believe that this kind of an orchestra, A, exists, or B, is going to play the music um, that they know ahead of time um, by the title of the music usually or the title of the concert that it is going to they're going to be able to play it and that's a wonderful um, uh, what shall I say well it's, it's not a surprise because Paul and I know that we are going well we are going to surprise them completely and these are the remarks that we hear all the time when when the concert is over that they had no idea that folks, with this level of disability um, could play this kind of music. And that's a wonderful kick for us, of course. The experience is just wonderful and has been from the get-go for our folks with disabilities because they are doing something that most people think they cannot do. Most people think that these folks with disabilities can't walk a dog, can't boil water. Um, It's amazing the can'ts. And then they come to one of our concerts and they sit there with their mouths open because there we are playing serious music right to them. And it is clear that they absolutely know what they're doing. And 99% of our folks with disabilities do not read music. Occasionally someone comes in and can, but it's at a very low level. 
It sounds like through the orchestra, you're also dispelling some myths about, you know, what people with disabilities can do um, and what can they do. You shared that your, your son was born with Down syndrome, um, but uh-huh. was very musically inclined. What has his experience been like with the orchestra? Well, Mike now plays um, the cello. And Mike um, lives in a wonderful community, one of 104 all over the world, um, called Camp Hill. And it is in Pennsylvania. And they have an orchestra. And um, Mike is now taking private cello lessons twice a week. He has his own cello. I'm not going to say he can sit down and play Beethoven, but um, he has a wonderful, and always did have, a wonderful sense of music. When he was, before he was two years old, he could sing all the parts for Peter and the Wolf. We are all born with the gene to make music, all of us. It's right there. Whether we use it or not, obviously, is up to our families. These folks who come in um, who want to play in in a serious orchestra have been listening to music one way or another all their lives. And it is clear that music is going to do a wonderful thing for their psyches. And basically, they don't know that they're not supposed to be able to do this. And so they do it. And that's the wonderful thing about interplay. They just do it. I wanted to ask you specifically, you know, on the show, we're talking about accessibility and what some of those cognitive difficulties, you know, might be in this transition. What does music do for a child with a learning disability? What have you seen in those that are participating in the orchestra? One of the things that caught me right from the get-go, and certainly with my own son with Mikey, was the look on their faces when they realize that they are actually playing music. Music, for most of them, the thought of being able to play it in an orchestra was way beyond anything that was imagined actually for their families as well as for themselves. Feelings have changed somewhat um, in the academic community. Um, So many folks are now learning to read with disabilities, are learning to read before they get to kindergarten. Families understand the importance of PrEP. And so they are coming into regular schools with the ability to read just as their classmates. Now, they may read a bit slower, and they may need a little help, but they are reading. And once they are reading, it's kind of propelling them into the area of doing things in the arts. And this is certainly what we have seen, um, and we see it all the time, when folks come in to have conversations with us about playing in the orchestra. Um, They want to do something. They want to communicate through music. And I would say 99% of them come in thinking that, yes, they can do this. No, it isn't something that they cannot do. And that's very important. But that has come from um, what has come before in their schools, um, whether it be elementary school or colleges, and certainly from their families. And, you know, from what we looked at in terms of um, some data on graduation rates and preparedness post-high school, it looks like it's a really difficult transition period to go from public education into whatever that next step may be, whether it's university or into the, the workforce. 
I wonder if your experience, you know, with your son as well as other people that you've met at Interplay, if music has helped kind of fill that transition and, and help people dive into new, new areas. Well, I'll give you a wonderful example. Several years ago, we had um, several, a, a few of our folks interviewed by um, PBS. Um, and one of the interviews was, it just knocked my socks off. Uh, the person interviewing her said, who are you? And she did not give her name. She said, I am a musician. Now, this person was in her late 20s when she said that. And I think that answers your question. Folks who come into Interplay sincerely with all their bones feel that they are uh, musical people. They are musicians. They can do this. And they see their friends who cannot do this. So, of course, you can imagine um, the wonderful feeling of knowing that you are part of an orchestra and that you have friends um, or even colleagues in the workplace who couldn't do this at all. It's got to be a very exciting feeling for many, many, many members of orchestras like ours across the country. As we as we wrap up the interview and um, want to leave our listeners with a takeaway from our conversation, what do you think our listeners need to know about um, special education services and what it's what that experience is like being a student needing um, just some extra learning assistance. Um, what do you think the takeaway is given your experience working with students like this and having well, interplay? First, okay. First of all, you know that all our folks are adults. Mm-hmm. I, I think that maybe younger people, the families of younger people, have expectations, um, and they should have expectations. Certainly, I did. Um, you really have to ask. And if there is not within the school um, or even in a church or a, uh, a temple, a synagogue situation where there are more advanced programs for children and young adults and older adults with cognitive disabilities, it remains upon the response of, well, it, it is part of what a parent needs to do um, to make things better. Um, it never stops. Uh, Mikey is in his 30s, and, I, and, and he is in an extraordinary situation. I still ask, what's next? What can he do next? Um, and it's never, what can't he do? It's, what can he do, and where can he do it? And that is a big responsibility, um, but that's what comes with having a a marvelous child with this kind of a disability. Yeah, and along the lines of what's next, uh, what's next for Interplay Orchestra? When is the next upcoming concert, and Uh, where can our listeners hear and see this orchestra? Okay, Um, they need to um, um, watch uh, the Strathmore bulletins. Um, We have a concert that will be in the spring, but we don't have a specific date yet. Um, they can go online to look up interplayorchestra.net, and there is always information on there, a lot of information about what we do and who we do it with and, and when concerts are posted. And I need to tell you that we sell out every concert. And that All right, so if people want to go, <laughs> that's right, I you have to get in early. 
Exactly. They they need to right. get in early. And I promised every single person who is listening to this broadcast, if you get to a concert, you too will be one of those who sits there in total and complete disbelief and joy. Oh, thank you. I wear this jersey cause Chicago is my city, my home. 186 where I would never ever leave it alone. Papa gave the sticks, the church gave me the microphone. After OFO, I knew that it was time to roam. Had to head south to come up on the knowledge of my roots. Nashville, Cashville, mm, I miss you. Southern bells, I had to ring them. Them alphas, I had to be one. After 07, this cat had to be gone. Came to DC to climb that hill they call the capital. Policy and hearings for five years I had to tackle. The fear and lack of self-worth that torment my soul, cause politics is usable, make you feel cold, went down a black alley, came out with a rare essence, after all I learned a couple of lessons, look, I could complain, but I came to see that, DC's been good to me, it may not be your city or your hometown, DC's been good to me, uh, keep that go-go funk groove going round and round, DC's been good to me, Chuck Brown, R-E-E, Thanks for giving us that go, go, groove.